Welcome back, everyone. <laughs> so we'll begin this session uh, as usual with a 15-minute sitting. <clears throat> we'll find some relaxed and alert posture. Settle in. Maybe begin just by taking a few deep breaths as a way of settling into the body. And as you close your eyes, we'll lower them, soften the eyes, relax the shoulders, <clears throat> relax the jaw, and the chest, and the belly. Settling into the awareness of the whole body posture. So sit and know you're sitting. If you found it helpful, you can use that phrase, there is a body. It's a kind of mental note. <laughs> Just reminding oneself. <clears throat> to settle into the awareness of the whole body posture. There is a body, <clears throat> feeling the whole body sitting. And with that open framework, be mindful of what you become aware within it. This would include sounds that are appearing, disappearing. <clears throat> the sensations of the body breathing. Be mindful of any other strong bodily sensations that call your attention within that larger framework that is a body. Just feeling them, being with them as they change. And resting again in the awareness there is a body when they're no longer predominant. <laughs>
within that framework there is a body where sounds that may be coming, sensations of the body breathing, other predominant bodily sensations. Also be alert and mindful for the arising, the appearance of thoughts or images in the mind. And notice where in that process you become aware of them. Are you aware of the thought after it's already over, in the middle, just as it arises? <clears throat> and to see it without judgment, just to be noticing how your process is unfolding. Also notice as objects of attention, any predominant mind states or emotions that may be present. Maybe one of the hindrances, desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. <laughs> it may be more positive mind states, calm, peace, contentment of interest. It's just to notice the particular mind state or emotion. Noting them is helpful as a way of being <clears throat> being with them without identifying with them. <clears throat>
settle back in the awareness of the frame, there is a body. And then being mindful of whatever appears, whatever arises within that frame. Noticing its changing nature. When you're ready, you can slowly, gently open your eyes. And again, be mindful of seeing. And even perhaps for a moment or two, just note seeing, seeing. Because it helps to reinforce the possibility of being mindful as we're seeing going through the day. 
this itself is its own interesting exercise. <clears throat> so, <laughs> continue with our discussion. This is uh, talk Papancha 2. <laughs> and we'll just... Uh, explore another aspect of it and hopefully a freeing aspect. So as you know, in the last couple of days, uh, we've discussed in some detail these powerful proliferating tendencies of mind and how they construct uh, our reality, how they construct our lived experience. And as you now know, they are all very much rooted in the tendency of craving, conceit, and wrong view, which are all rooted in the sense of self. Not only are they rooted in the sense of self, they further strengthen and condition the sense of self. So the question and challenge for all of us is understanding how to understand, weaken, and ultimately free ourselves from these powerful tendencies of the mind, from the source of difficulty and suffering in our lives. So the general principle and a quite obvious one, given everything we've talked about, was taught by the Buddha to his son Rahula. And the name of this discourse in the text is the Buddha's advice to Rahula, his son. So the story goes that the Buddha and his son, Rahula, were going on alms round, you know, in the morning to collect food. And as they were walking, you know, on alms round, before they got into the village, uh, Rahula, uh, in looking at the physical form of the Buddha, you know, and just how beautiful it was, a kind of perfection of physical form, physical beauty. And in Rahula's mind, he was starting to delight in the fact that he too resembled his father. You know, so seeing the beauty, you know, of his father's physical perfection, and then reflecting on, you know, his resemblance to that. Does that sound like one of the proliferating tendencies? (laughs) Well, the Buddha, being the Buddha, knew knew what was going on in Rahula's mind. One had to be very careful about one's thoughts in the presence of the Buddha. Uh, So the Buddha knew, so he stopped, he turned around, and he addressed Rahula. And this this was the background to this particular teaching. So I'm just going to quote a few lines from the actual discourse. Then the Blessed One, the Buddha, looked back and addressed Rahula thus. Rahula, he's really addressing us. So listen to these words as if we were following the Buddha on arms round having these thoughts and the Buddha's turning around and talking to us. (coughs) Okay, us. (laughs) Any kind of material form should be seen as it actually is with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not, this is not myself. 
that any kind of physical form should be understood with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. <clears throat> and then Rahula asked, does this apply only to material form? And then the Buddha elaborated, no, it includes material form, feeling, perceptions, formations, and consciousness, which are the five aggregates, you know, and that's really the template the Buddha often used. We, we read it often in the suttas as a way of describing our lived experience. These are the five components, the five building blocks, right? Material elements, form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. In other words, everything. This is everything we experience. So the Buddha is saying, apply this teaching to every aspect of what we experience. This is not mine. This is not I. <clears throat> this is not myself. So clearly this teaching is a corrective to the ways we create and strengthen and manifest the sense of self in our lives. It's directly addressing con craving, conceit, and wrong view. So we could think of it almost as a kind of mantra of liberation. You know, this mantra reminding us of what frees the mind. And I came across a line <clears throat> by the British poet Philip Larkin, which in some way, perhaps unbeknownst to him, but to me, it really captured the motivation for undertaking this inquiry. You know, and I love this line. He said, I'm tired of going around pretending to be me. <laughs> you know? so I think in a way that captures it. You know, we're all going around pretending to be a self, you know, and pretending to be me. It's tiresome. So the challenge, of course, <clears throat> is finding different ways of remembering this. You know, so we can hear this instruction, you know, and applying this mantra of liberation. But how do we actually put that into practice? How do we how do we do it and see for ourselves the benefit? You know, experiencing the ease and and the joy of release from the imprisoning construct of self. So just to give another little poetic uh, uh, encouragement, you know, highlighting this aspect, the kind of ease of it, uh, there's a Polish poet, uh, Anna Swier, a very short poem called A Double Rapture. Okay, so would you like to have a double rapture? Here it is, very simple instruction. <clears throat> because there is no me, I feel how much there is no me. You know, because there is no, because there is no me and because I feel how much there is no me. That's the double rapture, you know. There's no me in the first place and because I feel how much there is no me. So again, it just highlights the possibility of really greater freedom, greater ease. We're, we're coming out of, as I said, the imprisonment of a construct. So it's definitely worth 
investigating, not not just to believe it, you know, because someone says it, but to see for ourselves. You know, that that's where the transformation takes place. <clears throat> Fortunately, a key to understanding selflessness and to freeing ourselves at least to some extent <clears throat> from the grip of papancha. Remember, papancha means these proliferating tendencies. Is something that is completely obvious, but almost always overlooked. And that is by investigating with greater precision and refinement the truth of change. So just a little anecdote. Uh, someone once asked uh, Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, you know, and uh, was a wonderful teacher. And one of his one of his books was called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which was really a powerful influence when it came out back you know, in the 70s, maybe. Uh, <clears throat> so someone, one of his students, Yes, and you know, I've been listening to your teachings for so long, I really don't understand it. I don't understand what you've been teaching. Can you express the essence of the Buddhist teaching in a nutshell? Uh, so Suzuki Roshi just thought for a moment, and then he said, everything changes. Not complicated. Everything changes. <clears throat> of course, we all know this intellectually. You know, so this is not an esoteric truth, somewhat like selflessness, which is not obvious right away. But the truth of change, we all know that things change. But what's so interesting is we know it on one level, but we don't apply <clears throat> the insight of that seeing or knowing into our unfolding lives. We're not living that insight for the most part. So there's a lot of um, profundity in those two words, everything changes. The Buddha often used similes um, to bring his teachings home, you know, because sometimes a simple image can convey more and more immediately uh, the meaning than maybe a whole hour discourse. So I'd like to offer one image. It's, again, a, a very short poem. The image is expressed in very few words <clears throat> in this poem called Samsara. It's very short. It's just two lines. Samsara. Castles of sand at water's edge. Just take a moment to conjure that image in your mind. <clears throat> you know, sand castles at water's edge. The fragility and the impermanence of that construction is so clear. You know, a wave comes <laughs> and washes our precious sand castle away with all its finely crafted turrets and towers, you know, everything we put so much energy into. Or maybe a heavy rain comes, you know, and it's destroyed. 
Or maybe toward the end of the day, a whole gaggle of kids comes along and just stomps on our sandcastle. <laughs> yeah, it's so clear with that image, you know, castles of sand at water's edge, that that sandcastle has no intrinsic stable existence. The castle is really just a pile of sand. So obviously at water's edge, or really any place else, it's very vulnerable to changing conditions. Hopefully this is not hard to see or to understand. It, it seems very obvious. <clears throat> so what does the sand castle represent? Everything constructed, everything arising out of conditions. These are the sand castles you know, of our lives. And what's so profound is that everything constructed, everything arising out of conditions is everything. Everything, every aspect you know, of life, of the world, <clears throat> our bodies, our minds, the physical world, <clears throat> and on every level of magnitude, things are in flux. We could think of galaxies, or stars, or planets. Civilizations arise and pass away. Individuals with all their various thoughts and feelings, all sandcastles, cells, molecules, atoms, <laughs> subatomic particles on every level of existence. This truth of change manifests that nothing at all is stable and fixed. So when we investigate our own experience of impermanence, you know, through mindfulness and with greater and greater refinement, we see that nothing really lasts long enough to constitute a stable self. And we see that for ourselves. So at this point, through the greater uh, insight or refinement or perception of change, we are actually entering into the understanding of non-self, of selflessness. And we see this, you know, in our meditation practice, but also if we're mindful just in our lives throughout the day, you know, our bodies are always changing and thoughts come and go and our emotions are like clouds passing through the mind. You know, with each consciousness even, you know, is arising and passing away with each new object of attention. <clears throat> what we really call or calling self or Joseph is not some substantial, solid, fixed reality, but a kaleidoscope, a kaleidoscopic appearance of changing conditions. So we can see this. I mean, this this is, you know, it's not some deeply hidden truth. We really just need to pay attention to the flow of our experience. And we also see, and this is important to round out the picture, that all these changing conditions are following natural laws. 
and they're not simply subject to our will and wishes. You know, the body will age and die regardless of what we think about that. <laughs> because it's just natural law. This is, this is the Dharma. This is the law. This is the nature of things. And the mind, as we know, very clearly seems to have a mind of its own. <laughs> because, yes, I'm going to sit down and be perfectly concentrated for this hour. <laughs> well, it doesn't necessarily follow our wish. So this, this aspect is another meaning of non-self. You know, in Pali, the word for non-self is anatta. So it's usually translated as non-self, but one of its characteristics, uh, manifestations, is that things are ungovernable. Meaning we can't control them simply by our willing or simply by our wishing. But there's one other aspect that's important to bring into the picture. And that is that this process of change is not happening unlawfully. So it's not chaotic and it's not just this kind of big mix of phenomena and we're kind of swirling around in it. No, things, things are changing, are in this flow, but in a lawful manner. So there is the possibility of directing outcomes if we understand the causes and conditions for something to arise. So it's not simply because we wish it, it's because we understand in this lawful process of change, things arise out of conditions. And if we understand the conditions, then we can help direct or influence the unfolding course of our lives. And of course, this is the whole basis of Dharma practice. And as I mentioned yesterday, I think this is the great gift of the Buddhist teachings because he understood so clearly the causes and conditions behind suffering in our lives and behind greater freedom and ease in our lives. So given this deep understanding and experience of continual change, and we need to have the experience, as I said, we already know it intellectually, so that's not the problem. We have to uh, embody it in a way. We, we have to drop into the actual experience of things changing moment to moment. And this is what our meditation is about, and this is what mindfulness is about. So as we drop further into this experience of continual change, you know, it's like the flowing water of the river, as I mentioned yesterday, and seeing that conditions are not subject to our will then the Buddha's instruction to Rahula and to us becomes a very direct pointing to the possibility of freedom. He's giving us an instruction here. See everything with perfect wisdom. This, and the, this includes everything, 
in the mind, in the body, in the world, in the cosmos, <laughs> see everything with perfect wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So we can practice this. We can practice putting it into practice, not only in formal, in times of formal meditation, uh, but also in the daily activities of our lives and not stay satisfied or um, just be following along, you know, in our conventional way of understanding things, a superficial way of understanding things. And we can practice disentangling from the papancha of craving, conceit, and wrong view. This can actually be practiced. Of course, the very big question remains, okay, how do I practice? You know, what do I actually do? So going back to the discourse of the Buddha instructing Rahula, it says that, this is kind of a nice little human touch here, says that even though Rahula was following the Buddha into the village for alms, alms round, it said that he had the thought, that Rahula had the thought, oh, after being instructed and exhorted by the Buddha, who would simply go on into the village and for food? And so he turned around, you know, all inspired to put the teaching into practice, said he turned around sat down at the root of a tree to meditate for the day. So happily for us, there are some simple ways of exploring this quite profound teaching, even when we're eating. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so we don't necessarily have to turn back and find the root of a tree, even in the act of eating. If <clears throat> we are paying attention in a certain way, we can, we can be exploring, you know, this, this instruction. So one practice that I found particularly helpful, whether it's in eating or in anything else, uh, this, this is a practice that can be applied at any time. It's holding the question in mind And holding in mind from moment to moment, what is being known? Just moment to moment, you know, in, in whatever we're doing, but we could say in this case, eating. You know, so we're engaged in eating and we hold that, well, moment after moment, what is actually being known? So, for example, with eating, the conventional answer, if somebody said, well, what are you doing? I'm eating. Right? That, that would be the conventional response. But right, right there in that response, already there's an I. I'm eating and then it becomes my food. You know? So it's so interesting. When all of that is just strengthening, you know, that unknowingly, that conventional way of responding and perceiving unknowingly we're strengthening the sense of I, strengthening the sense of self. 
So just for a moment, reflect on how pervasive these prolifer proliferating tendencies are. They impact almost everything we do. We're continually reinforcing the sense of I or the belief in a self doing it all. But with strong mindfulness, you know, and investigation and interest, and interest is a key component here. And with the question, what is actually being known? Simple question. We see that experiences are arising and passing away moment after moment. That what we call eating, right? So we give it that general name, or I'm eating, are really sequential moments of the sensations of chewing, of tasting, of swallowing, perhaps interspersed with moments of sounds being known or thoughts being known. So this is what's happening. It's like, it's like moment after moment, it's just these different momentary experiences arising and passing, arising and passing. And we see the changing nature so clearly, it's so obvious. When the mind settles back into each of these experiences, you know, with just with bare attention, it's just, okay, what is being known? Oh, chewing, tasting, maybe seeing, hearing, thinking, right? just moment after moment, we're tracking it. But when we're settled back in that way, there's no forward leaning into the next moment. You know, and in that, we're no longer craving for the next taste. Have you noticed how often, just many people, uh, we can be eating and we're chewing food, and even when there's still food in our mouth, we're reaching for more food. <laughs> so what's that about? <laughs> you know, it's just the mind of craving. It's just, okay, we, we chewed out the taste, right? So there's that craving for another taste even as we still have food in our mouths. So this is just a kind of normal habit for very many people. This practice of settling back, okay, what's being known? And then we really are settled back into the moment. And so there is no proliferation you know, of mind, no reaching out, no leaning forward. There's no sense of I am the one eating. You know, it's just a sound being known or a taste being known. So we freed ourselves, at least for those moments, we freed the mind from craving, from conceit. And there's no sense of a self doing anything. There's just that experience being known. There's no agitation, there's no perturbation of mind. So I hope you see this is not complicated. And the, the real challenge <clears throat> is not in doing it. It's remembering to do it. <laughs> you know, we just get so caught up in the busyness of our lives that we forget that the Dharma can be lived, can be applied, whatever we're doing. Right? So we don't, we don't want to uh, miss those opportunities. So here, I just want to emphasize 
again, I, I referred to it a bit uh, the other day. Here I want to emphasize just the importance of language <clears throat> and how language can deeply condition our understanding, often without our realizing it. So yesterday, I think I mentioned, you know, how we misunderstand the meaning of self, ascribing to it, you know, some substantial fixed reality when really it's only a word designating a process. Right? So how we understand the use of language really changes how we perceive things. In this in instance, in this exercise of holding the question, but what is being known moment after moment, it changes our usual linguistic framework from the active voice to the passive voice. You know, in the active voice, <clears throat> there's a subject, a verb, an object. And so we would say, you know, I'm eating food or I'm going here or there, or I'm hearing a sound. But this use of language, the active voice, as you can see, already posits the I, just in our normal way of conversation. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I'm often uh, remembering Descartes' famous dictum, I think, therefore I am, as if somehow that proved the existence of an I. <laughs> but already, I think, already posits the I. <laughs> So it's really saying I, therefore I, <laughs> instead of eliminating the I, thinking, therefore thinking. Well, the passive voice takes the subject out of it. And so even though writing coaches will say, try to avoid the passive voice, it's not, it's not an energized way of writing, but for the purpose of meditative insight, I have found, and I've used this a lot in my practice, uh, reveals so much and actually makes the practice much easier because it's not an I trying to do something. So instead of I'm knowing the taste, it's a taste being known. In that phrase, a taste being known, there's no subject. <laughs> it just describes the actual experience of what's happening. And so an application of this linguistic tool can be very helpful. You know, and, and I've used it a lot. Just I wrote just do the same experiment we did yesterday and kind of moving the arm, but here with a different purpose. Uh, yesterday I was talking about how we can use it to be mindfulness that's feeling it rather than watching it. So that use of language. But here we can just move the arm and it's just the movement being known. Not I'm knowing the movement. Just moving the arm. And so as you do that, and I hope you are, <laughs> I can't see you, but I hope you're following instructions here. <laughs> so you're just moving your arm and really getting to the experience of moving it in. 
And it's just the movement being known. Does it take any effort at all? No, it's it. The knowing is happening simultaneously, you know, as we're paying attention. So this way of understanding, this way of framing experience, not only takes the subject out of it, not only takes the I out of it, it also takes the takes unnecessary efforting out of it. So thing is, things become so easeful. Okay, this is this a whole long pitch uh, for using this. So what's being known moment after moment? This reveals very clearly, very simply, very immediately the truth of change. You know, that experiences are just changing moment after moment through the six sense doors. When we are not seeing this, and we're back more in that active conventional mode, I'm eating, it would be easy to kind of come to the conclusion, well, there's some more or less permanent I who's doing all of this, right? And it's in that way that we get ensconced in wrong view. Uh, so there's a lot of power both in this way of seeing impermanence in the passive voice. It's not only are we seeing the change, but the way we're framing it already takes the subject out of it. Yeah, so it's very liberating. What I would suggest to you, uh, if you're inspired to explore this further, is just to take five or 10 minutes at a time. So you don't think, oh, I have to be doing this all day long which if you could, would be fine. But just start small, you know, just five minutes where your intention, whether it's eating or in doing anything else, you know, you could be going for a walk and just, okay, moment after moment, what's being known? It might be a movement, it might be the feeling of the breeze on your face, it might be the feeling of the sun, you know, or a thought or a sound. So you'll have the same experience of the flow of phenomena. You know, the momentary change that's going on. There's one other uh, very direct, immediate, and I found in a way quite startling um, practice for seeing with tremendous immediacy really the profundity of change. And that is, <clears throat> well, I'll, I'll explain how we might do it. And that is seeing how things are continually falling away. So it's almost like being at the edge of a waterfall, you know, and the water just keeps falling over the edge. But one time I was just going for a walk, you know, around uh, here in Barrett. And I was, you know, trying to be mindful. And then I, I started reflecting, well, what happened? to the experience of the step a minute ago. And I really, it's gone. <laughs> I mean, completely gone. You know, it's past. And then, well, what about a step 30 seconds ago? Gone, completely gone. And so I brought it right up to the present moment stepping 
and could see that every moment things are falling away. It's like every moment it's water over the waterfall. And it's not difficult to do this. You know, it's just tuning the mind into it because this is what's happening. And it's, uh, and you might try, it might be easy if you go through that process that I did, you know, start with a minute ago or five minutes ago, because it's so obvious that it's gone and then work your way up just to this very last moment. Gone, 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 gone. So we, we have the, the very uh, embodied experience of this continual change, this continual falling away. Uh, now in that space, you know, in that experience, it's really quite profound because first we see the impossibility of clinging because th things are just falling away moment after moment. So the clinging falls away. The eye falls away. It's almost like everything falls away, you know? And so we really begin to experience the mind that's free of these papancha, free of clinging, free of grass. And we get, we get a taste, you know, of a possibility of the mind that is not holding on to anything. So you see in both of these uh, exercises, they're not difficult to do. These, these, you know, one doesn't have to have been practicing for 30 years in order to do this. Uh, they're, they're simple exercises. Uh, and they're ones that I've just kind of played with and, you know, explored in my own practice. And just coming out of retreat, they're very alive for me. And that's why I wanted to share them. So another approach that I played with on retreat, which was equally revealing and quite interesting to me, uh, also had to do with exploring not mine, not I, not myself. And this was using the framework of the physical elements. And this is not, as, not in an ongoing systematic way because this, the practice on the elements is its own meditative technique. You know, and there are ways really of developing it very consistently over time. But I was, I was using it you know, just enough to reveal the important role again of language in how we experience things. So I'll, I'll explain this a little more. Just as a reminder, in the classical texts, the Buddha used a kind of shorthand, you know, common in those times to describe the physical elements in terms of the felt experience of them. So here we're not, when we talk of the physical elements, we're not talking about the periodic table of elements that we learn in chemistry. You know, that's, that's something different. We're using kind of this very classical formulation of the physical elements that was used at that time a lot of the elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And so the Buddha kind of used that as, as a shorthand for describing how we actually experience them. So for example, earth, 
is hardness. The earth element is the experience of hardness, you know, and fire element is the experience of warmth or, or coldness, you know, absence. Uh, air element is movement, you know, and pressure. Uh, water element represents cohesion, that which holds everything together. Okay, so I was just doing walking meditation. And what I've noticed for a long time now, even before, you know, applying this uh, teaching on the elements, that even when we're being mindful in walking, you know, and we're really, we're being pretty mindful and we're feeling the sensations of the movement and touch. But I noticed that there often, there often is a subtle, almost subliminal background impression of I'm walking. You know, it's not something that's actively formulated in the mind, but without much reflection, if somebody asks me what I'm doing, I'm walking. <laughs> you know, so, so that conditioning is just so strong within us and we carry it. You know, we carry that conditioning throughout the day. So not only is there that kind of very subtle background impression I'm walking, but I also noticed that there's often, again, even as we're being mindful, you know, of the different sensations, but there can be this very minimal overlay of an image of the foot or leg. You know, so we're walking and we're we're feeling the movement, but it's almost as if the movement is contained within this almost invisible image, but it's there in the mind, you know, foot, leg. So for a short period of time, I started walking, but noting the movement and the touch of each step using the framework of the elements. So as I felt the forward movement, I would note it as air or air element. And as I noted the touch, as I experienced the touch, the hardness, and as I touched the ground, I noted it as earth or earth element. But it was also connecting that note, air element, earth element, to the felt experience of it. So it wasn't just kind of this concept in my mind. It was connecting that language to the experience. So all this seems quite simple. It was really just a change of language. But again, I want to emphasize that it needed to connect the words to the experience. There was a striking shift just from this simple exercise. Because when I noted air, or I noted earth, connected to the experience of the movement and touch, the conceptual overlay of foot and leg completely disappeared. It was just air element, earth element. And it was so clear that air element, earth element, doesn't belong to me. Would you ever say, unlike my leg, 
would you ever say my earth element <laughs> or my air? No. When we drop down to that level, that particular proliferating tendency falls away. It was so clear, it's just in the movement or air element, earth element. So the concept of leg fell away. It clearly wasn't mine. And it clearly wasn't, there was no I am in it. <laughs> Again, would you ever say I am the earth element <laughs> or I am? The, no, because we've dropped down to a different level of understanding, a different level of perception where we're seeing things really as they are, free of the proliferating tendencies which then condition our perception of things and condition the, the reinforcing of the view of self. So I hope you're getting some idea. There are ways that there are practices that we do that are not complicated. It's like any of us can do them if we have the interest and there's an immediacy to the effect. So we get a real genuine deep insight right, into both the truth of impermanence and the truth of the non-personal nature of experience, air element, earth element. These are non-personal. This is just nature. <laughs> this is just nature manifesting its nature. Uh, I'd really encourage you, again, if you have the interest to explore this for yourself, um, because I found it very, very revealing. And um, even since I've been out of retreat now for you know a week or so, and getting very busy again and involved in the world, but quite amazingly, now even when I go for a walk, having practiced this on retreat, I find my mind just slipping right into that way of experiencing each step. And one of the benefits of this, and it's a big benefit, is that in times of mental distress or mental suffering, which almost always revolve around one papancha or other, you know, when, when we're really caught up in suffering or distress, very likely there's a mine and I am or this is self involved in that. So in times of some kind of mental unease to drop into this level of perception, oh, air element, earth element, where those proliferating tendencies fall away, it takes us right out of the distress, right out of the suffering. You know? <laughs> I hope you're as interested in this as I am, <laughs> because it just seems so, uh, so interesting. <laughs> because it has to do and, and with how suffering is created in our lives and how to be free. You know, often when the Buddha was asked, what do you teach? He says, he teaches just one thing, suffering and its end. You know, and, and often we think, oh, yes, well, I'll practice for you know, a hundred lifetimes and maybe I'll get enlightened by the end of it. And 
I'll come to the end of suffering. Well, that may be the case, but we can actually come to the end of suffering, even if it's for a few minutes at a time when we apply the teachings. So we don't want to postpone it. We want to actually use it, you know, as a very effective uh, tool for well-being in our lives. Okay, and perhaps if your interest is not quite peaked enough yet, there's maybe this one last little piece will will be that final that final boost to pique your interest. This teaching on the elements is exactly the teaching that the Buddha gave to Rahula because he went on, you know, and he said, everything should be seen with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. You know, and then he went on to say, you should see form in this way. You should see all of the aggregates in this way. And then he went on to say, describing describing this, you know, exercise on the elements. Rahula. Now, but this is this is right from the discourse. Now, both the internal and external earth element is simply earth element. And it should be seen as it actually is with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. And then the same with all the other elements. So the Buddha was using this practice of working with the elements to cut through the conceit of I am that was in Rahula's mind. So if the Buddha were giving us that instruction, wouldn't you be inspired to go out and practice it? (laughs) Even if we don't turn back from getting our breakfast, but actually apply it as we're eating breakfast. Uh, Yeah, so I I would just really like to encourage you uh, to play with all of these various suggestions you know, of things being known, you know, using that passive voice of seeing the impermanence of things falling away, bringing bringing that awareness right into this very last moment, falling away, falling away, falling away, and just see what that feels like. See what you learn from that. Or using this exercise on the elements. So as we practice this more and more, and we learn to touch the experience, you know, at least at times, this experience of non-self, of selflessness, that this whole mind-body process is that flow of changing experiences. And we can do this even as we're engaged in the normal activities of our lives, as well as, you know, informal uh, practice, we see that the natural expression of not mindness, this is not mine, results very often in spontaneous uh, expressions of generosity. When we're not holding on to things being mine, 
then generosity really can flow much more easily. And, and in being generous, we are also weakening the sense of self. We're letting go. You know, we're, we're reinforcing that sense of not mindness. So I, I had a very uh, clear experience of this, which I've mentioned in various Dharma talks over the years. But it was a very, um, it was a very vivid experience. Uh, when I when I came back from India for the last time, this was in 1974. In that summer, I was teaching at the first summer session of Naropa Institute, you know, that Buddhist uh, college that Trungpa Rinpoche set up in Boulder, Colorado. So I, I was teaching. Um, you know, a course in Vipassana. And they had given me this, you know, like faculty apartment to live in. And it turns out that of of all of my friends, you know, who'd been in India together, I was the first one back and the first one who had a job of any kind. Uh, and therefore the only one with an apartment. So as my friends came back from India during that summer, Oh, where should we go? Let's go. Let's go visit. We'll stay with Joseph in Bolton. <laughs> you know, so these were very close friends from India. But, you know, when five, I can't remember now exactly how many, but it was more than two. <laughs> you know, four or five, six friends show up at my apartment in Boulder, and I'm, I was working pretty hard. You know, I was, I was teaching many sessions a day. I could feel myself getting a little tight behind all of the, this was just like a one bedroom, you know, apartment. And these, all these friends, you know, piled in uh, sleeping bags on the floor. And, and I could feel myself, you know, getting contracted by this. But then I, I had a, it was, it was like a mini Satori. <laughs> and at a certain point that very fortunately for me, I began to question, well, why am I, you know, why am I so upset? Uh, because in India, when we were in India together, we shared much more crowded circumstances and there was no problem. And I realized that all the distress, all the suffering was coming about because I was think of, thinking of it as my apartment. I mean, it was that simple. This apartment is mine and these people aren't invading it. <laughs> You know, and so naturally, oh, kind of resist. I don't like this, even though they were close friends. As soon as I let go of that idea, this is mine, then it just became a shared space as we had done so many times in India. There was no problem at all. In fact, then I got to enjoy, you know, the presence and the company of these dear friends. So it has very practical applications for how we're relating to our circumstances in the world. And it might be interesting whenever we feel contracted in one way or another, this feeling of this is mine is not necessarily the only cause of that, but it could be a not uncommon cause. You know? And so it might be worth looking, you know, in those times when we feel contracted Am I holding on to something as being mine? You know? And is there a possibility and is it appropriate to let go of that idea? Um, 
Yeah, and just to say, oh yeah, this is it's not mine. This is just the space we're all sharing. I want to emphasize though, in suggesting this, it's not to put it out as an absolute because there could well be times when it's totally appropriate to set boundaries, you know, and to say, no, this is not, this is not right, you know, or we, we, we have to look with clarity about the situation, you know, and to apply the appropriate remedy. Uh, but this could be one avenue that we perhaps don't think of very often. And to see in a particular situation, well, would this be appropriate? And would it actually ease my suffering? So we also can see how our deepening understanding of non-self by cutting through the proliferating tendencies of craving, of conceit and wrong view expresses itself, this understanding expresses itself in the lived experiences of the four Brahma Viharas, which, you know, as most of you probably know, are those qualities of mind of loving kindness, metta, of compassion, of empathetic joy, you know, where we take happiness in the happiness of others, and equanimity. You know, and so when I think of the Buddha and the liberated mind, it's what I imagine is, you know, this great expanse of awareness free of any contraction of self and also suffused with these four qualities. You know, so it's, so it's a beautiful, uh, it's just a beautiful expression of what's possible for us as human beings, you know, where we're not constricted in this prison of self and it manifests through these beautiful qualities. Well, I wanted to give just a few examples of how it works, uh, each one of these qualities, you know, and how, how they come about through the letting go of these papancha as we let go of craving, conceit, and wrong view, they express themselves in these very beautiful ways. So I mean, there, there could be many examples for each of them, but I just picked out you know, ones that came to mind. There's one text, there's one discourse, uh, where one of the great disciples of the Buddha, his name was Anuruddha, was in a kind of, you know, there was a park or a forest grove uh, with two other monks practicing. Uh, and the Buddha came by to uh, meet with them. And so I'm just going to read it. It's just a little piece of the discourse. So this is the Buddha speaking. I hope, Anuruddha, that you are all, the three of you, living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. And Anuruddha replied, surely we are living in concord in just this way. And the Buddha said, 
But Anuruddha, how do you live thus? Okay. Venerable sir, as to that, I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards those venerable ones, both openly and privately. Maintain verbal acts of loving kindness, mental acts of loving kindness, both openly and privately. And here's, here's the sentence that really jumped out at me. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? That is how we are living in concord, with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. When we are not in the grip of this is mine, this I am, this is myself, then it's easy to have that thought. Why should not I set aside what I want to do and do what these others would like to do? Because we're not holding on. We're not holding on uh, to the notion, oh, I need this. You know, or, and again, we need to see when this is appropriate because there might be situations where, for whatever reason, we should be doing what we wish to do. So I'm not making this into a kind of an absolute uh, dictum. But I found in my own life that this understanding can come into play a lot. And, and I try to live like this. You know, when I'm with friends and people, where should we go to dinner? Well, where would you like to go? I'm happy to go wherever you'd like to go. It's not, it's not a big thing. But as we let this settle into the way we live, this is an expression of loving kindness, of metta. Uh, and it comes about when we've loosened the grip of I and me and mine. You know, our, our lives just become an expression of generosity and more loving kindness. Okay, in, in compassion, So there are two examples I want to give of how loosening the papancha opens us to compassion. So one experience uh, happened in um, when I was still practicing in India, in Bodh Gaya. And for those of you who have been in India, you will probably recognize this, you know, generally, the situation of dogs in India is terrible, you know, because often they're, they're just wild dogs, you know, not not aggressively wild, but just they're not they're not people's pets. And there are many, many, many just wandering around the village and they're really in pitiable condition, you know, often with mange and starving and it's it's hard. So sometimes I'd be in the village, you know, at one of the tea shops, the chai shops, just having, you know, a cup of tea and maybe some sweets. And these dogs would be coming up. And I noticed two very different reactions in my mind. When I was caught in the, oh, I just want to enjoy my cup of tea and have, you know, have these sweets. I, I, I. Yeah. And so then I had no patience. I, I didn't even want to see, you know, it was, 
was too disturbing to see and was disturbing the enjoyment of my tea. Right. So I could see that. I could see that, you know. And then at other times, when my heart was a little more open and relaxed and I wasn't in the grip of papancha, then I actually let I let the suffering of those dogs in, you know, and instead of trying to kind of keep it out, I would just sit there and I was, you know, having the tea. But I really opened to the experience of those poor dogs, you know. And instead of kind of resistance or trying to, you know, avoid, all that arose was compassion. You know, the, the suffering was so obvious. You know, and so as the compassion came up, then, so, you know, throw them a little food or whatever, I'd respond very differently. Where does that difference of response come from? From whether the papapancha were there or not there. Do you see, I, these Brahma Viharas, these beautiful qualities of mind come about quite naturally when we can step out of the constricting nature of I, me, mine. So we want to see that, you know, and see, really see in our own lives. So how does mudita, sympathetic joy, you know, come about? This is one of my favorite examples because I think it's pretty unusual so this is a little uh, story about the French essayist Montaigne. Um, and I can't remember exactly when he lived, 1600s, 1700s, something like that, <laughs> back a few hundred years. And evidently he had this profoundly important friendship with this person. Uh, that it was a platonic, it was a platonic relationship, uh, but of, of profound importance in his life. Okay, so this is what he wrote about his way of relating in this relationship. And I just find it quite striking. So this is, this is from Montaigne. In a truly loving relationship, which I have experienced, rather than drawing the one I love to me, I give myself to him. Not merely do I prefer to do him good, rather than to have him do good to me, I would even prefer that he did good to himself rather than to me. It is when he does good to himself that he does most good to me. If his absence is either pleasant or useful to him, then it delights me far more than his presence. Uh, isn't that pretty amazing? In terms of relationships, this is genuine mudita taking joy, taking delight in the happiness of others. <laughs> I don't know, but I think 
I don't know how common this is in people's normal relationships. I would even prefer that he did good to himself rather than to me. It's when he does good to himself that he does most good to me. If his absence is either pleasant or useful to him, then it delights me far more than his presence. So I, I find I find that tremendously uh, insightful, you know, and and beautiful, you know. That would be a beautiful way to be in relationship to people, because again, we're taking the I, me, mine out of it, right? And it just opens up the possibility you know, of these wonderfully beautiful qualities of heart and mind. So the last of them is equanimity. And this is expressed so clearly in one very pith teaching of the Buddha, the possibility of just a profound equanimity. And it really points to directly to liberation. And we can begin to experience it, you know, again, even just for a few moments at a time. So the Buddha said, when seeing impermanence, which I talked a lot about how we might do that, uh, in seeing impermanence, and we can see this for ourselves, the mind doesn't cling. The things are continually passing away. When not clinging, it is not agitated. So we should check that out for ourselves. You know, when we're in that flow of impermanence, see if there's clinging or not. Don't just believe it. But I think you'll see that there is no clinging because things are, things are continually changing. And when not clinging, see whether there's agitation in the mind or not. You know, so we put it to the test. When not clinging, it is not agitated. When the mind doesn't cling, it is not agitated. When not agitated, it personally realizes Nibbana, the highest peace. So again, as we let go of the proliferating tendencies, we cut through them, we really can taste <coughs> a very profound peace. So I'd like to close with the last words of the Buddha. So just imagine the scene, the Buddha spent 45 years teaching, you know, tremendously devoted disciples, uh, many of whom, you know, had realized uh, enlightenment or stages of enlightenment or being on the path, you know, to stages of awakening. So you can just imagine the moment the Buddha's dying, these are his very last words. So you can imagine the import that they had. So we should hear them in that way. You know, really as if the Buddha, these are his last words to us. With the light of perfect wisdom, dispel the clouds of ignorance, dispel the darkness of ignorance, subject to decay, are all conditioned things. Practice with heedfulness. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Sand castles at water's edge.
subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with diligence. So for all of us, we need to find ways in the very midst of our lives and all the busyness of it, in the midst of all our worldly activities to remember and put these teachings into practice. Because these are the practices that free the heart. I find it inspiring to just reflect on the fact that people have been practicing these teachings for thousands of years, you know, benefiting, you know, realizing the benefit uh, from their practice. Now it's up to us. It's like now it's our turn to put these teachings into practice and to carry the teachings forward. So thank you. Um, let's just sit for a moment and let the words dissolve. May all beings be at peace. And again, a reminder, if you have any questions, you can send them to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.